Greetings in Jesus' name. At the song we just sang, and we're just thinking of the closing of 2017, and then we sung, sang this last song about the Lord coming again, and you wonder, will he come this year, this coming year? When I was a youth, as I was driving to work, I went past the... Um, it's a house or some kind of a building that had those two angels with trumpets, you know, going towards each other. And in the middle, it said, perhaps today. <laughs> and I wasn't well taught in eschatology in my youth. It took me a while to catch on what that meant. <laughs> but what it basically means, perhaps the Lord will come today, perhaps today. And we could say perhaps this coming year. We don't know. I want to thank the Lord for the first message and the idea of looking over this past year and reflecting trials and experiences that we've had. And I want to do a little bit of that at the beginning here. Today is the last day of 2017. And just a little bit of reflection. How has your year been? Was it everything God promised it would be? Was it? Was the last year everything God promised it would be? Well, what did God promise us? (laughs) He promised he wouldn't forsake us. Did he forsake you this last year? He's promised that in temptation, he would give us a way of escape. He has promised he would give us life. He's promised he would give us abundant life. That's the opposite of what the devil gives, which the devil comes to destroy and to kill and to deceive. God promises the opposite. Has your last year been everything God promised it would be? Has he kept his promise? Let's say it that way. How has your walk with God been this last year? Are you closer to him now at the end of the year than you were at the beginning? Or are you further from him at the end of the year? And how can you tell? You know, I heard a message some years ago, a New Year's Day message, in which the preacher used an example of a business taking physical year-end inventory. You know, in a business on paper, or now in cyber paper nowadays, you know how much you have in inventory, right? <laughs> but at the end of the year, you need to physically check your inventory just to make sure it matches what you have there. And he used that example of physical inventory at the end of the year and used had a message on point by point in different areas of our lives, how are you doing with the Lord in different areas? 
How obedient am I to the first commandment to love God? And how obedient am I to the second commandment to love others? And item by item, take a personal inventory. You know, that would be a useful message, I am sure. Uh, maybe I will have a message like that some sometime, but not not this morning. This morning, I would like to give the last message of this year. We will look at Peter's last words to his sheep. And you can turn to Second Peter chapter 3. In this chapter, you know, Peter was told by Jesus to feed his sheep and to feed his lambs. It was the Lord's sheep, with the Lord's lambs, and Peter took his charge seriously. And in this chapter, we have Peter's last words that he wrote to his sheep. As we understand, he was probably martyred soon after this. So what does he say to his flock last? You were listening here as as um, Matt Feener, Matt here, read uh, Tim Sizett's letter. And he went through Second Peter chapter 3. I have four points this morning. He enumerated all four points in his letter. And that letter came this morning. I could not believe it. So I, I responded to him and I told him I, I can't believe uh, this you just had my message. All four points are right there. Well, he said, well, you're the one who asked me to write the letter. I had texted him a few days ago. Hey, we had, can you write us a, a church letter? He said, nobody ever asked me to write a letter before. <laughs> so you asked me to write it, and I gave it to you, and there it is. And I don't know. I don't know the workings of the Lord but it was it was amazing it was very encouraging really encouraging i think both to me and to him and so as we look at this last chapter he addresses his people four times with the word beloved and i'm going and after he uses that word beloved he gives them a, uh, an exhortation or an admonition so um I'll go over those beloved. So the title this morning is Peter's Beloved. <laughs> In verse 1, if you're going to follow, it's beloved, be mindful. In verse 8, we have beloved, be not ignorant. In verse 14, we have, Beloved, be diligent. And in verse 17, we have, Beloved, beware. He 
he uses the word beloved one more time in that chapter that he's not addressing his people. He's saying our beloved brother Paul. <laughs> so he uses the beloved five times, but four times he addresses his people. And so I want to speak on those four points this morning as we go through here. We'll go through the whole chapter. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Beloved, be mindful. And what were to be mindful of? Be mindful of what was spoken before. I know you know this, but I want you to be mindful. And we ask the question, why? Well, did Peter understand human nature? You know, it's easy for us to get accustomed to God's truth. I think of, um, what's his name? Eutychus. Anybody know who Eutychus is? A man that fell out of the window. Paul was preaching. Now, if Paul, the Apostle Paul were here preaching, would you fall asleep? We think, well, I don't think so. This is a young man who fell asleep with Apostle Paul preaching. Because we, as human nature, we just can get lax. We can come complacent. And... So Peter knows that we need to be reminded and we need to be aroused regularly lest the enemy find us asleep and take us advantage of our spiritual stupor. So Peter said, Be ye mindful of the words which were spoken before. Don't forget what you have been told. Now I look where Jesus did the same thing actually. You turn to Matthew chapter 24. We'll look at a few verses there. Jesus did the same thing with his disciples to prepare them for the future. Chapter 24, starting at verse 23 to 26. Or 20, yeah, 26. Jesus is speaking. Then, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. There's that same Greek word. I have told you before. Wherefore, if they say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Jesus was telling them, He's actually giving them prophecy. He said, this is what people are going to do. This is going to happen to you. But I'm going to tell you ahead of time so that when it comes, you will know it. And then, don't believe them. There are words spoken before that if we are mindful of, 
it will keep us from harm and destruction. And I was thinking how to illustrate that, and I, my mind went back to something I read many years ago now. <laughs> Pilgrim's Progress. Are you young people reading Pilgrim's Progress? Or maybe you're listening to it. <laughs> that is a, it's, it's amazing allegory. But Christian in Pilgrim's Progress found out the hard way about not keeping or being mindful. So I'm going to go over one portion this morning. Christian and Hopeful had just spent, I don't know, some days with the shepherds in the delectable mountains. They had a delightful time. Now the shepherds named for, and they all every every name means something in this, but the shepherds name were experience, watchful, sincere, and knowledge. And the last leg of their journey to the to get to the celestial city was was successful largely thanks to these shepherds' counsel. Well, as they were about to depart, one of the shepherds gave them a note describing the way ahead. Another one of them advised the pilgrim to beware of the flatterer. The third told them to take care that they do not sleep in the enchanted ground. And the fourth commended them to God's sustaining mercy as they traveled. So they got this this direction from the shepherds. So then they go on forward and they come to this Y in the road, which two paths and both of them look straight. <laughs> you ever been there? <laughs> both paths look straight, but there's a decision here. And as they were standing there wondering what to do next, here comes this man, and it says it's a black man with a light-colored robe on. Well, that's symbolic, of course. So he tells them to follow him, and they did. And before they were aware of what was happening, he led them into down this other path. And the story goes, actually, the whole thing turned around, but he got them in a net where they were completely entangled. Completely entangled in a net. And they didn't know. Then the white robe fell off the black man's back so that the captives began to understand what had happened. And then here's their conversation. Christian said, Now I understand that I have been caught in an error. Did not the shepherds exhort us to beware of the flatterers? Today we have found it to be true, which the wise man has declared, a man that flattereth his neighbor also spreads a net for his feet. And Hopeful says, They also, the shepherds, also gave us written instructions, showing directions along the way as to ensure our safe arrival. But we have forgotten to study them, and so had not kept ourselves from the past of the destroyer. So they were not mindful of the words that the shepherds gave. And they suffered for for it. And then an angel came. And does anybody know what the angel did after he rescued them? I think I see a few smiles. Anybody want to volunteer? Put your hand up if you think you know. Any children? He scourged them. That's right. I'm going to actually read what he did. He actually did more than scourge them. He did that, but let's read here. So he released them, 
And then he ordered them, follow me so that I may direct you back to the way again. So he led them back to the old straight way, which they had left to follow the flatterer. Then he asked them, where did you stay last night? And they replied, with the shepherds in the delectable mountains. And he said, did they give you any written instructions with a map for the way ahead? And he said, yes. But the shining one pressed them further. Shining one was the angel. When you came to a halt there, did you refer to the map for guidance? And he answered, no. So you asked him, why? And he said, we forgot. <laughs> then he said, did the shepherds exhort you to beware the flatterer? And he said, yes, but we did not imagine that this fine-spoken man was he. You know, they got a lawyer's interrogation before they got disciplined. So he told them to lie down and he scourged them. And while he was whipping them, he declared, as many as I love, I also rebuke and discipline Therefore, be zealous and repent. Having done this, he directed them to be on their way and to pay particular attention to their directions. Now, when Peter is saying, you be mindful of the words that, you're, that were spoken before. And then you have an experience and you forget. And then you have you get into serious trouble and then you get scourged. You know what? That actually does something to us. You will remember better the second time. And that's the point. So Jesus said, I have told you before. Peter says, be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Peter says, in the last days, not Peter. Paul says, in the last days, pearliest times shall come. Peter says, in the last days, scoffers will come. Like flatterer, they will walk up to you innocently looking enough. And you must be aware of them. And you must be mindful of the words spoken. So you will be able to identify those scoffers. That's what Peter's saying. But like Christian, we could say, well, we could not imagine this fine spoken man would be a scoffer, but they are. Better look closer, better look closely at your directions. We have been told before. So the first point is, beloved, be mindful. Second point is, beloved, be not ignorant. Ignorance is Bliss, not. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance here has the meaning that something is being hidden from you or you're unaware of something. It means not seeing the whole picture. I guess we could go back to a couple Sundays ago when Mick was, Mick was here and he talked about you can just see a little hole. You can't see the whole picture. Well, we're ignorant. And since we can't see the whole picture, we will arrive at a wrong conclusion. 
I remember in my youth, we had an experience that I didn't forget. I was with some other boys after dark, and we were driving. I don't know what we were doing. I had no idea what we were doing, but we, as we were driving there near Clay or someplace, we saw a glow in the sky. And that was one thing. That's a fire, probably a barn fire. Well, what do you do when you see a barn fire and you're with a bunch of boys? Well, you go look at it, right? We go down and come to the end of Clearview Road, and it's closed. Fire police are there. Can't get in. Can't go to the fire. Well, we are boys. We're energetic. We have a, we want to see the fire. So we just go down the road a little bit. Right down from Mondary, down the road a little bit, parked on the side of the road. And there's an open field there and there's the fire on the other side somewhere beyond the trees. So we start running. And any of you who know that place, there's a creek running down through there. And it was not visible in the dark. We were ignorant. It was hidden from us. We were unaware of it, and it dampened our enthusiasm <laughs> to run to the fire. I don't remember if we, if we went in out anymore. I don't remember anymore. But that, that part I remember. I remember that part. We were ignorant. Peter says, beloved, let's read it, verse chapter eight and nine, uh, verses 8 and 9 here. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Be not ignorant of this one thing. A delay in judgment and a delay in his coming back does not mean that it won't happen. That's what the scoffers were saying. It hasn't happened. That means it won't happen. Now, when did Christians believe Jesus was going to return in judgment and to restore things? Most Christians as I study history, most Christians in history believed it would happen in their lifetime. We heard it. We hear it today. I heard it in my childhood. And you go back through the writings of history, you hear it. You go back to the early Anabaptists, they were quite certain it was very close. In fact, Martin Luther I found this one. Martin Luther was so impressed by the precariousness of the times that in 1528, he was so impressed that in 1528 that he expected the end to come before he had time to finish translating the Old Testament into German. He was, the, the, he was let me read this. He was so impressed by the precariousness of the times in 1528 that he expected the end to come before he had time to finish the translation of the Old Testament. For this reason, he proposed to translate, first of all, the book of Daniel, which was to be brought as soon as possible before the poor Christians of these last times before everything perished. 
you know, that sentiment is fairly common, especially in tumultuous times. That if you're going through difficult times, it seems like the Lord has to return soon. So they thought it was going to return back then. Well, you can go back in medieval times and you go back to the before the church fathers into the early church. Same thing. Time for bad. Probably worse than it's ever been before. Chains and uncertainties were everywhere. Jesus was going to come back soon. Now go back to the people where Peter is writing to. They have been expecting the Lord's return for several decades. The Lord had not returned. And the scoffers were saying he's not going to return. Shall we begin to believe scoffers? In fact, the Thessalonian Christians were very disturbed that Christ did not return because some of them had died. Does that mean they're going to miss the Lord's return? And let's just read that. You can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. And he has the same words in there. Paul does here. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ arise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. There has always been an expectation of the Lord's return, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, the way he words it, he says, yeah, there's some that, has, that have died. Now, I don't know what Apostle Paul thought. Uh, sometimes you think maybe he thought the Lord would turn in his lifetime. I don't know what he thought. But he does say, we which are alive will be caught up with those who have died. Now, that's, of course, looking down the road to us. <laughs> we, which are alive, will be caught up with them. They'll go first, and we'll come after. However, that, we'll have a discussion about how that happens later. But whoever reads those words usually reads them in the context. We, which are alive, when the Lord comes back. So there's always that expectation, but it goes the whole way back to the beginning. An expectation of the Lord coming back. And just like there was always an expectation of the Lord coming back, there always was a distress when he didn't come back when you might have thought he would. That is common as well especially in your very serious trying circumstances. So there's distress. Well, Paul eased the fears by saying death makes no difference to the Christian because Jesus conquered death, so that makes no difference at all. 
He died and rose again. So Peter deals, I mean, Paul deals with their distress in that way. But Peter gives two explanations for the seemingly delay of the Lord in, in this chapter. First, he says that God does not live in time as we do. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. You can think about that for a long time, but basically what it means, as I understand it, is we have our allotted three score years and ten, give or take. And when we're done with our time, we're done. That's, that's what we got here. What we don't get done, we don't get done. That's how we look at time. But God, what does that mean to him? He can do it today or he can do it a thousand years from now and it makes absolutely no difference to him. None difference. He's not slack. He's not late. He's not tardy. He has a plan. And he can do it when he wants it because he's outside of time. That's the one reason that Peter gives. The second reason is Patience. His seemingly delay of salvation is, I said, rework this. He is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, patience and long suffering is one of God's attributes, just as his justice and his righteousness is. God is not all terror and judgment, just as he is not all love and grace. And how does God's attribute of patience and long-suffering flesh itself out? It fleshes itself out by him not coming back. You know, if the Lord would have come back in 1988, when that man wrote that book, 88 reasons why Christ is going to return in 88. There's a book out like that. You can probably, well, if they're still available, you can probably buy it at a yard sale. 88 reasons why the Lord will return in 88. Well, he didn't. If he would have returned that year, I'd be lost. I was not a Christian. That was the mercy of God. If Christ would have returned before, there would be some lost who are now saved. If Christ would return at this moment, I could say there's some in this room that would be lost. That will not be lost if he has patience. He has not come back because he is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come back to repentance. Be not ignorant, Christians, as to think that his delay means he's not going to come back. He's not going to keep his promise, because he will. God's delay in fulfilling his promise, delay from our perspective, of course, God's delay does not mean he has an inability or that he is fickle. 
It is because of his attribute. It's because of his plan. It's because of his long-suffering. And I found this quote, Live as though Jesus will return soon, and plan as if he won't. Keep that intention. So, beloved, be not ignorant. Beloved, be diligent. And we'll read verses 10 to 14 here. But the day of the Lord will come. Now, I guess get that. The day of the Lord will come. But it will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, and here is our word, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Beloved, be diligent. For someone who does not believe that there is a coming judgment, what kind of life do you expect a person like that to live? Such as a scoffer in this context. They questioning the Lord's return or actually doubting it. <laughs> they tend to leave ungodly lives. And why not? Many people, even so-called Christians, question God's judgment. My God would never do such a horrible thing to good people to send them to hell. A good and a loving God will not send any of his creatures to hell. And in the fact, they are right. God does not send good people to hell. <laughs> Which of you is good? There are no good people. And God doesn't send people to hell. They choose it. People who end up in the lake of fire are there as a consequence of their choices, of their actions. Imagine, and this is, this is theoretical, imagine you are on that waters above the Niagara Falls, that river that goes down across those rapids toward the falls, and you see someone going down through there, and he's trapped in that current, and you throw him a rope. You call out a warning. If the warning is heeded and the help is accepted, the person will be saved. However, the response may be varied. First could be unbelief. You're joking. I don't believe I'm in danger. That's unbelief. Foolishness. This is exciting. This sounds like fun. 
of this person that is in the rapids going down through. Or a third one, self-reliance. I can swim to shore. I don't need your rope. Or neglect. I'm still a long way from the falls. I got plenty of time. And those are responses. In fact, those are responses that we get as we talk to people today of their danger of their soul. Unbelief, foolishness, self-reliance, or neglect. But today, God is warning sinners to repent and to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He is not unloving. I'm sorry, he is unloving in not rescuing those who despite his warning. Oh, I'm sorry, here. Is he unloving in not rescuing those who despise his warning and refuse his help that he has offered them? Is he unloving? No, he is really loving. But as for God's people, as for us, how should we view the situation we are in? As we look at everything's going to be dissolved Everything will be done away with. The heaven will pass away. How should we then live? And I thought, well, the best way I can think of it, say, like in the days of Noah. You know, if you were Noah and you were told there's going to be a worldwide cataclysmic flood, that's catastrophic flood, if you were told that and that everything's going to be destroyed, would that change how you orient your life? Would it change where you put your emphasis on? You think Noah had a lot of stocks and bonds? <laughs> you think he cared a lot about social status? You think he was taken over recreation? Or maybe... Maybe he was prioritizing listening to God and obeying him. Maybe preaching to his neighbors. Maybe developing strong family ties because he took his family with him. Maybe he was focusing on worshiping God. We don't know exactly what Noah did, but we can be certain that his priorities were different than all the others who did not believe in a flood. That we can be certain. You believe in a flood that's coming, or you do not believe in a flood that's coming, is a great dividing line of priorities. <clears throat> so today, we believe in a coming judgment. We are not scoffers. We are believers, after all. And God tells us that one day it's going to go poof. And it's everything is going to be gone. Like a thief in the night. Like we heard this morning, when the storms come, it's not the time to work on those foundations. Too late. When this happens... Suddenly, like a thief in the night, 
irreversible, unstoppable, indescribable destruction, and it's coming, how should that affect how we live? Peter Hoover, he's now in Australia, he used to say when he looked at a Pennsylvania stone farmhouse, that he looked at that house and he said, you know, you are actually um, acting a lie. I think it's the way he said it. Farmhouse is acting a lie. He said, you stand there as if you're always going to stand there. But he said, you're not always going to stand there. Someday you're going to be poof as well. But this destruction is not the end. Destruction of all we see now is a means to something better. You know, we tear down old things, right, Neil? Do we tear down old things? Dilapidated things, dirty things, so that we can build something new and beautiful. That's the reason we tear things down many times. So let's look at it this way. The destruction of the earth is a good thing because we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now that's good. We have a promise. It's a new heaven and a new earth and there won't be refugees in that world. There won't be murders or sexual harassments or political intrigue, the burning up of the old is to make way for the new. It will be a world filled with God's righteousness. You know, I was in Second Peter for quite a while, and then we were at Claudius' wedding, Kyle and Claudius' wedding, and one of the things they they wanted us to do is when we when you come to the wedding, they had a Bible, and you are asked to highlight your favorite Bible verse and then sign it at the end so they know who did it. Well, that puts you on the spot. Well, what's my favorite verse? And I know, but uh, I, 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 this is a very good one. So I, I don't know if this is a good one for a, a, a soon-to-be married couple or early uh, young married couple or not, but uh, the verse that I wrote is um, is verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth where indwelleth righteousness. Now, I know that might not be the best thing to say to a young couple that wants to just start life together and spend a little bit of time together. But it is a beautiful, beautiful verse. And that is why God's people are looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. God's people have everything to gain by the world's coming to a close and to an end. But Peter says, be diligent, though, be diligent that you, me, be found in him, in peace, without spot and blameless. Whoa. And that diligence is that same sweaty word that we had before. It means do whatever it takes. Don't let 
a roadblock stop you from this? When it says be diligent, don't allow anything to stop you from doing this. Don't let difficulty, trial, persecution, or pleasure or anything keep you from being diligent to being found in him without spot and blameless. That is a priority. I remember the first children's lesson I had, actually the second one, because the first one I had in, in Wisconsin in 94, the first one I would have had at charity, I still remember that children's lesson where I gave the example of how God is faithful all the time, taught the children that. But I used examples. One of the examples I used is Noah. When he was told to build the ark, he was told to pitch it inside inside and out, told to pitch that thing. And I asked him, asked the children, well, how, how do you think that would work if he just partly fulfilled God's commandments? Just pitch some of it. How's that working out? And of course the point is it's a priority to make sure everything was pitched when you're going to be in a worldwide flood. I think you want that. But I am weak. But I can't. But you don't know my circumstances. Do you really know what you can do when you make something a priority. And an example I had, someone would say, well, I just cannot control my emotion. We're having difficulty in our family. And and when we get into this unrest, the, the, the emotions flare up and we just have total emotional meltdowns. And I can't help it. And the counselor said, well, let, let's think that through a little bit. Let's imagine you are in the middle of that serious meltdown with one of your children where you are all over the place with them emotionally, and then the phone rings. And, of course, this comes back. You, 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 have to, you young ones have to understand back. When we, were, when we were young, when the phone rang, we didn't have answering machines. When the phone rang, you, climbed, you jumped over sofas and knocked down chairs to get to the phone. I mean, you've got to get to the phone, right? Yeah, the phone was important. We, us, we remember that. So you are in the middle of this meltdown, and the phone rings. And you answer, hello. Yes, I'm doing fine. Yeah. You can't control your emotion. You can control your emotions. If for the right reasons, for the well-being or for the uh, status in your neighborhood, sure, you can control your emotions. If it's a priority. The point is, we are weak. The point is, we need the grace of God. But the point is, Peter is saying, be diligent that you be found in him without spot. That is God's word. Blameless. And Paul says, Endure, as he's talking to Timothy, he says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. 
Endure. Endure it. Hardness. I don't know what hardness is, but I think it sounds pretty hard. And then I thought I would like to read the Hebrew, some parts of Hebrew 11 this morning as we think of, I can't do it, I'm weak, and all those things. Let's just read parts of Hebrew 11 and into, actually into, into chapter 12. And I'll start at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time will fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others, and here's the others, were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourging, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better things for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now here's the exhortation to us. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay every, every side every weight, and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And so, when Peter says, Beloved, be diligent and make it a priority, we have those cloud of witnesses that made faith in God and his promises of priority, and they endured. They persevered, and they got through. And so Peter can say to us, yes, you're weak. Yes, it's hard. But don't take a victim mentality. The grace of God is here. There is grace available to be found in him on that day in peace without spot and blameless. Go for it. You know, nowadays in this culture that we live in, we live in a much, much more of a victim mentality. Uh, I'm victimized or I'm oppressed or I have been uh, discriminated against. And that's largely the spirit of the age. And it actually is becoming a little rare 
to have this strongly taught in culture is get up. Be a man. Go make something of yourself. That's becoming rare. Now we, that comes from a, um, from a, simply a natural perspective. Young people don't hear much of that anymore. But Peter is saying, go for it. The grace is there. Be diligent and do it. Don't be a victim. Don't be, I can't. Don't be, this is too hard. Be diligent. And then verse 17. Beloved, beware. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. And these last two verses, there is actually a complete capstone of Peter's whole burden of his whole letter. This is a capstone of that of the letter in a in a in a couple of verses. And they are beware and grow. <laughs> That's if you take Second Peter as a whole, it is to beware and it's to grow. He gives both of them the whole way through his letter. If you see a sign, if you're walking up to a house and you see a sign that says, beware of dog, it puts a little bit of caution in your heart. Because you don't know what to expect. Now, suppose you're walking, come through a, a, a gate towards a house, going up the walk towards a gate. It's sort of weedy, sort of run down. But you open the gate and you go in through this walk towards the house, which is a little bit distance away. And you see a sign there in the yard that says, beware of rattlesnake. <laughs> Would it put a little bit of caution in your heart? Probably on both sides of the room with a rattlesnake, I suppose. It's actually intended to put a little bit of caution in your heart. If there's a sign like that. Peter wants us to be alert when he says beware. He actually wants us to be alert. You know, a healthy fear is actually healthy. You, you and you and I could be led away with the error of the wicked. Those really nice wicked people. And you or I could lose our stability. We could fall. But the answer is not to live in fear, is it? The answer is to grow. Grow in grace. How do you grow in grace? What is grace? Grow in grace and in the knowledge, but grow in grace. You know, Strong's definition gives this definition is the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. That's what grace is. I pictured, this is a good day to picture this. We have a stove in our basement that we use to heat our house. 
picture with me a cold day and a cold house within in the basement is a cold wood stove and everything is cold and someone comes in and lights a fire and gets that stove hot the stove turns the heat up in the house and the end is a nice warm house like we had this morning mostly warm that grace of God is the fire the stove is the human heart and the house the warm house is the life and behavior of that human that's how grace works you get fire in there in that heart which warms the heart up and then it gives a reflection in the life that is grace grace of God out of his own will and goodness and mercy coming into your heart and bringing with it life, light, and power, the power of God with it. That's enormous, and that's life-changing, and then Peter says, grow in that. Grow in that fire of God in your heart, and as you grow, that warmth will emanate from that heart of God, of grace. And you will grow and grow in that grace. That is the answer to our life, especially in a cold, cold world that needs to have invitations of people to come in out of the cold. Here's a quote that I found somewhere, I thought, uh, just as a contrast to that growing in grace. He said, we have not done so well in modern times. We went from making disciples to just making converts. The whole emphasis shifted to one of just trying to get people to walk down the sawdust trail and to say the sinner's prayer. Once they had done that, then they were told they were set for life and could go back to the pews to watch the show as the preacher continued to try to get others to do the same thing. Salvation is more than forgiveness of sin and a reserved seat in heaven. To limit it to that is to limit it to a fire in that stove that may or may not emanate any warmth to the house. The grace of God will bring a whole bunch of things with it. Like in Second, in uh, Titus 2, where it says the grace of God as a teacher, and it teaches you things. And uh, we could go into the whole thing, but I won't this morning. It, the grace of God will bring with it salvation. It will turn a rebel into a son. It'll turn a sinner into a saint. And it'll turn an enemy of God into one of his faithful soldiers. That's what the grace of God does. Grow in that. Grow in that, brothers and sisters. And that was Peter's last words to his sheep as he was given the charge back there when Peter and Jesus met him 
out there were fishing, met them on the shore, and they cooked those fish on the shore there and had that conversation with Peter. He said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And those were the last words that Peter had for his sheep. So, beloved, be mindful. Be mindful of the words that were spoken before. Beloved, be not ignorant. His delay is because of his patience with people. Beloved, be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. Beloved, beware. Beware that you don't slip, but rather grow in grace and in knowledge. Let get the house of your life toasty, warm, and cozy with the grace of God in the midst of a cold world. Thank you, Peter, for those gracious words. and Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and salvation. If you are able, why don't we kneel for prayer this morning? <clears throat> oh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, as we think of a cold, cold morning like this. What it would be like to be out there and to be homeless and have no shelter, have no warm place to go to, have no warm food to eat, and just have to make do under some newspapers or some whatever cardboard or whatever we could find. Lord, that is the condition of the world without you. But Lord, by your grace, likened to a warm house, we are in warm houses we have what we need. We are provided for. We are sheltered. We have hope and we have purpose. And Lord, it is because of you this morning. We worship you this morning. You are the God who has given that to us. Not because we were good, not because we deserved it, which we were neither, Lord, but because of your patience and your long suffering and your mercy. Now, Lord, here at the begin at the end of this year and the beginning of 2018, I pray, Lord, that this grace would become more of a reality in our lives. Lord, that it not only become a reality in our lives, but it become more of a reality to those around us. That that warmth would emanate from us in greater and greater ways, Lord, that it would bring, yes, Lord, your kingdom could grow on this earth while we are waiting and hasting to the day when you will come back. Lord, thank you. Thank you for all those things. Just pray, Lord, as we think of this past year and the many things that have gone through. And, Lord, as we think of difficulties and regrets and many things of that nature, Lord, we look to you to guide us in 2018 and to guide us and to lead us and to prosper our spiritual lives, Lord. If you wish to, Lord, you may prosper our natural lives. But, Lord, we do ask you to prosper our spiritual lives. Lord, we do not want that. That is not a 